You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome, everyone, to Season 7 of Turning to the Mystics, where we're turning to the German mystic, Meister Eckhart. And I'm here with Jim, and we're going to dialogue about Jim's Session 3 talk. Welcome, Jim. Yes, I was glad to rejoin you for Eckhart chat. What a rich session this one was, Session 3. There was just a lot in there to digest. I really enjoyed it. And I think I could listen to it over and over again to to really capture everything and digest everything that you offered. So I hope today we can explore a few of the concepts. And again, if people want to send in their own questions, we do a, a question and response with listener questions at the end of the season. So I'm sure there'll be some uh, additional questions that will be helpful to everyone coming in for that. So to get started, Jim, you said towards the end of the session that uh, Eckhart is not teaching a method. He is instead inviting us to be more consciously aware of choices we can make throughout the day. So would you say this is a way of life we're we're trying to adopt? Yes. Let's say for for Eckhart, uh, the point of departure is the generosity of God. So the the Galazanite, the generosity of God is that that the abyss-like depths of God, the ground, is by the generosity of God given to us in our nothingness without God. And so God's ground is my ground, my ground is God. So there's a communion already given, like mm-hmm. an infinite self-donating generosity. Then he says that the powers of the soul, the things as we go through the day, we, today we would say our faculties or our personality, our experience of ego consciousness in our language. He would say maybe the interiority of our ego or the interiority of our faculty. That our faculties, that our, our knowing self and all that it knows, our remembering self, all that it remembers, our loving self and all that it loves, is exiled from the ground. So we, we, that which we attain, we attain through our powers, through our knowing, our loving, our remembering, our senses, but not, not the ground. Mm. And because we're exiled from the ground, we're subject to this notion that we're real all by ourselves, without God, and that everything around us is real all by itself. And because we think that there's nothing to us, but what we experience ourselves to be getting to another day from life to death, we, we cling, possessiveness of heart, to, to understanding, to knowing, to having, to loving. And that clinging is really clinging to an illusion, namely the illusion of a self being real without God, because God is being poured out as the very reality of ourselves in our nothingness without God. And that clinging then, is the hindrance that keeps uh, pervading our discontent. Mm. So the next level for Eckhart, I think, is, uh, is our faith. For in our faith, God accesses our powers. So that God accesses our understanding, 
So when we hear in the scriptures that God loves us through the power of the Spirit that dwells in our hearts, we're given to a certain interior knowledge that God does love us. And in that sense, then, our understanding is transformed in knowing that we're infinitely understood. Likewise, in our memory, is through faith, is to know that God will never forget us, ever, ever, ever forget us. We're eternal in God. This moment is eternal in God. Everything is forever in God that would never be forgotten. And also in love is this infinite love so infinitely in love with us that it has given us the very abyss-like depth of itself as our own depth. In this phase we might call similarity. So we move from dissimilarity, possessiveness of heart, like the image looking in the mirror, and we think that we're real without God, to the similarity of through faith, discipleship, and devotional sincerity. And as that ripens over time, we get to a place where we come to the edge of ourself. We're really the hidden center of ourself. And he says, there flash forth before my soul. See? If only I could attain it, I would possess all truth. It, it comes by stealth to steal the soul away from itself. That is, And what you're really glimpsing is the ground. And having glimpsed the ground, you realize it's your homeland. And then you seek to go there, like longing for the ground. But how do I do that? See? And that's the path of Meister Eckhart. So he gives some practical strategies of uh, as we go through the day that we can practice finding our way to the ground day by day consciousness by being sensitive to certain tendencies in our heart. And that's kind of the setup, I think, for Eckhart and Path. I'm interested in, you, you talked about, uh, he's trying to help us with this sense of discontent. And is it discontent with life, that we might feel it with life in general? Or, or is it a particular, this discontent with not being able to access the ground? Is it, or both? You know, St. Augustine, you made our hearts for thee, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. That God has created us in such a way that nothing less than an infinite union with the infinity of God will ever be enough for us. And that's our discontent. See? That if we're even capable of attaining it or losing it, it's infinitely less than what fulfills us. But it, it takes a while to come into focus to understand that. Yeah. And uh, like everything suffers from not enoughness. Mm -hmm. Everything, no matter what it is, is not enough because it's not infinite. It's not infinite. And so that's, that's the longing. We get a taste of uh, this infinity given to us as our very life and our nothingness without God. And having tasted it, we're just content, especially in the gift of having tasted it. Mm -hmm. the, 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 that's the grace dilemma. Now that I've tasted it, I don't know how to consummate the longing that the glimpse is awakened within me. So the, the teaching of Meister Eckhart, and each mystic, these are the teachings of all the mystics, notice, but each one has his or her own language for this. So having glimpsed it, then what is the path? As I, and he's living out in the world, he wasn't cloistered. He's living out in the midst of a busy world. So how can we in the midst of the busy world follow this path to consummate this longing? You talked about the way through faith, God accesses our powers. And starts to illuminate them and just listening to this path of detachment there seems to be something in the way the powers get illuminated that we can be more open to suffering as part of life so that we're not going to cling to joy or reject suffering 
in a certain way. Would that be true to say? Yes. You know, in the session where I gave some examples that he gives, and one of them is whether or not we're in a state of joy or a state of sorrow or suffering. Uh, we should be detached from that. So if we're in, if we're in suffering, because suffering is ribbon through life, uh, we should always do our best, first of all, to uh, be a, a nonviolent, nurturing, protective person that doesn't contribute to suffering. And when suffering occurs, there's the moral imperative of doing our best to liberate ourselves and others from suffering. But insofar as we're not able to do so, or it's a process where it's still there, we are not to let the suffering uh, lay claim on us as having authority to who we are. For the innermost depths of ourself is this ground that we've been quickened, where we've glimpsed innermost. And so, in the, like the surrounding levels of ourself, there is the suffering. But the, we're to hold fast to this, this hidden center, this liberated hidden center see, that uh, the suffering can't touch. Thomas mm. Merton says that it is not subject to the brutalities of our own will because it belongs completely to God. And we're to hold fast to it. And this is where meditation practice comes in, too. I think the daily rendezvous to practice this. In, in a quiet space, so during the day, we live that way. And likewise, if we're having a joyful, then we should be happy for joyful times and be delighted in them and be grateful for them. But to know that the joy that we experience in the powers, see, illumined by faith, is infinitely less than the infinite joy, the joy that death doesn't have the power to destroy, mm. is being given to us in the ground. Because the joy that we experience in conditioned states is ephemeral, it's passing. Just like the suffering we experience is passing. And the self that suffers and joyful is passing. Mm. Death. But in the midst of this journey through time unto death, there's that in us that never passes away. And we're to hold fast to it within our heart and practice. Every time we catch ourselves getting reactive, every time we catch ourselves acting as if, the outcome of the situation has the authority. We're to take a deep breath and remind ourselves that it's not true, that there's this mm. hidden, unfelt, deep, abyss-like center, see, in which we're being unexplainably sustained in the midst of the circumstance. It sounds a little bit like removing ourselves from the sense of cause and effect in the world that we live in. That's right. That we're open to something beyond just the day-to-day -day cause and effect that we might experience. That's a good way to put it. In Buddhist language, just to be karma to deliverance from karma, Buddhist language too, I think, is that we live in a world of cause and effect, and we do in relative consciousness of relative reality, we live in cause and effect. We put our hand on a hot stove, we get burned. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, for leave for work, we're leave for work. That's really true. But there's uh, infinite generosity that utterly transcends, completely permeates cause and effect, unexplainably forever. Mm. And we're trying to be ever more habitually stabilized in the heartfelt sense of that. Yes. See, not to be disheartened by outcome. Yeah. The word detachment, of, sometimes it can have connotations of being like cold and detached, you know, and that's, that's not the sense I'm getting about this. You don't become a cold, detached person. Yeah, the example I use is that... Um, uh, if we love someone very, very much like the beloved, and, uh, and who we see the beloved to be in our love for the beloved, we're very moved by love 
not to do anything that would cause discomfort to the beloved, not to do anything that would cause the beloved sorrow. And then we realize these habits that maybe we get little signals that cause us sorrow, quick to anger, withholding intimacy, being impatient, unkind. We realize that these hurtful patterns are ingrained in us. So we have to actively work at being detached at the patterns of the heart that compromise the fulfillment and love that we long for. So actually, detachment is actually coded language for radicalized attachment to this infinite love, this infinitely, maybe your word is bonded rather than attached. It's for love's sake. Mm. The same way with an artist, we say we're a, a poet, that when, when, a, when a poet is in the stream of poetry, like the flow. So, uh, you know, Rilke, Letters to a Young Poet, we'll look at him later as one of the mystics. And this Letters to a Young Poet, a young poet writes to uh, Rilke and says, here's some of my poems, tell me if they're any good. And Rilke says, you're looking outward. He said, you must stop doing that. You must ask yourself in the stillest hour of your darkest night, must I write poetry? Mm. If the answer is a clear and simple yes, you must build life's even life's most incidental moments and in fidelity to that inner necessity. See? So you have to be detached from uh, diversions where you'd be led off of that fidelity. So it's actually a radicalized bonding and love of obediential fidelity is detachment. You're detached from what compromises the consummation of the deepest God-given longings in your heart. I see. That's really helpful. So this idea of the journey in faith and the idea of kind of the measure of our faith is love and we're trying to be a loving person to ourselves and others and the world. So we, we, we can do that wholeheartedly. We're not detached from trying to be a loving person or to, to the love that we want to share, but we're, it's something different to that. I see what you're saying. Detachment is kind of confusing in this way. Yes. Let us say to follow Jesus, like discipleship, follow me. And so the disciple's heart is bonded to the Lord, Lord of your true self. To love the Lord your God with your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole strength. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so the detachment, you would say, to ask God for the grace not to be led off that fidelity. I see. By passing, by passing things. By things that are contrary to love or compromise love. Mm. And so Eckhart uses the word detachment in that sense. Because the trouble is we are led off by those things. Yes. We are led off the path by those things. And there's like an inner perpetual conversion process of being transformed by love into this fidelity in love. And uh, pass beyond the gravitational field of these compromises. And that's, that's detachment for Eckhart. Oh, that's really helpful. So in the pursuit of being loving, I can be wholehearted in that. But where I might catch myself is if I see myself not being loving and I might attack myself for that or or kind of be down on myself for, for not being a loving person. Is is that the moment where I might be needing to detach? That's another great example. Thomas Merton once said one of the talks of the novices, he said, we should always meditate on discouragement after a fall, after we do something like, oh, mm. I did it again. Because he says it reveals our secret agenda, a holy me. Oh, wow. How ah. you or you or you could do something like that, but me, see, but me. And therefore what we're to do actually 
that's why I say we catch ourselves in the act of perpetuating violence on the part of us that needs to be loved the most. And this is where in the eyes of Jesus, it's mercy. The deep acceptance of ourself as fallen is the aperture through which God's infinite mercy touches us in our heart, see, which is salvation. See, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And so Eckhart would say attachment is attachment to an idealized sense of self, and we get discouraged because we can't live up to it. Yes, yes. Thomas Merton once said, we're all walking around with a little agenda in our heart. Once I start doing this and this and this, I'll be close to God. Once I stop, he said to realize with God, there's no agenda. God doesn't have, God's not waiting for you to stop doing anything or to start doing anything. And it's just that we can't bear being infinitely loved because mm. there's no control in being infinitely loved. No. That's helpful to hear because I do feel like a lot of times our responses are not conscious. They they come out of somewhere we didn't see it coming, like the reactivity, the anger, the the um, yeah, the ways w we're not loving often come. They're not. They don't feel intentional, and so th it's helpful to hear that. Yeah, see, this is why Eckhart would would uh, invite us to become a reflective person, where we reflect on our, the way we think, the way we feel, and this is what discernment is. See, I think discernment begins in becoming aware there are aspects of ourselves we tend not to be aware of. And the relevance of that is becoming aware that these aspects of our, or these tendencies we tend not to be aware of are deeply influencing the things we are aware of. So it behooves us to bring them out into conscious awareness, which requires a reflective, quiet, receptive attitude to come out to, to growth and experiential self-knowledge, like know thyself. Mm -hmm. In the presence of this God who is infinitely in love with us and is given to us in our nothingness without God. Yeah. This clinging or attachment that you've talked about, does that happen in the powers and is it in a particular power? Like is it our emotions that clings or is it our intellect or is it all of them? Yes, it, it happens in the powers. Attachment happens in the powers. And, uh, and through faith to the desire to be liberated from those tendencies is in the powers illumined by grace. And it's all of them. It depends on which one's getting activated at the time. So, for example, if I really feel the need to understand something and I can't understand it, I get impatient with myself, in which case it's the powers, see, tr trying to push through and force its way through. See, if, if it's uh, in love, like uh, the brokenness of love or love lost, whatever it is, then it's through love. If this, so it depends on which which aspect of ourself is being activated at the time. I but it see. runs through all of them. Being sub because we're estranged from the ground. Yes. Because we think we're nothing but our ability to do this and this and this. That's what perpetuates. So through faith, we're refining the powers illumined by grace in a state of similarity. And so I say to similarity, we're able to come to the edge of ourself where the light of the ground sh starts shining through. Mm. That makes sense. So even like a memory, uh, a memory that keeps popping up into my m mind and makes me feel terrible, that would be another way this happens. Yeah, and here's where I think also uh, psychotherapy touches spirituality. That if I have a, a memory that keeps coming up, something that I did or failed to do that caused suffering toward myself or another, and I feel terrible. See, what psychotherapy is all about 
is to provide a safe place to sit and try to understand why you feel so terrible. And it must mean because you feel terrible is you wish deep down you would have never done it. And that's the goodness in you that's deeper than the weakness in which you did what you did. Or that it was was never done to me. Exactly. And so this is where we, we keep coming to clarity, like by heartfelt clarity, a tender-hearted, courageous clarity mm. like this. And so psychotherapy does that in the layers in ego consciousness. Then illumined by faith, it would be spiritual direction and guidance to this. And then the fruition of, of spiritual direction, it can bring us to this mystical state of the ground shining through. And then where do we, so how do we navigate that? How do we consummate to the ground? Yeah. I heard you share five ways of practicing this throughout the day, and I wanted to just touch on each of them if that's okay. And my understanding of the five practices were they're, they're things that hinder us from experiencing the ground. So the first one you talked about uh, and we've touched on it a little bit already, but whatever state we find ourselves in, strength or weakness, joy or sorrow, uh, whatever we find ourselves attached to, we must abandon. And you gave this example of going in to see Merton when you were at the monastery and he would ask you how you were and you would say, not so great, and he'd say, don't worry, it'll pass, or you'd say, I'm great, well, don't worry, it will pass. And I just wondered if you can remember how that felt to you when he would say that? And do you think he was trying to teach you this way, this practice? I do. I, I think he was very, um, he was like a gifted contemplative spiritual director. I felt so grateful to be in his presence, really. just Because uh, I, I feel he embodied the mystical lineage of the Christian tradition. And uh, he had that kind of astute empathy. And I was only 18. When I first entered, I was just right out of high school. And I think he was very aware of that, too. So, so I think he was trying to help me to be more even-minded and to see these rhythms within myself. And Because uh, what happens, we get caught up in the moment and we can't see past the moment. So if we're in sorrow, we can't see past our sorrow. We don't see that so it's already starting to give way to something. And when we're in joy, we try to hold on to it, but we can't hold on to it. And so we're, we're, he was trying to sensitize me to the awareness of that, I think. And do you remember how you felt when he first started doing it? Was it shocking? Or? No, I, I laughed because it was true. Yeah. He would say things that made me laugh because they were so clear they were true. You know, yeah. Sometimes someone just says something that's poetically so clear. And uh, as soon as you hear it, you know that it's true. And he was, uh, he was so gifted that way. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. So, so that first one is really about an, an inner state. So it's like, let's say I'm sorrowful about something. And so it's got all of it. So then I say to myself, yes, it is. this moment is sorrowful, but it's not just sorrowful. Mm. For in the deep down depths of myself, there shines this invincible depth that doesn't take the sorrow away, but unexplainably transcends and permeates it unexplainably. And I take a deep breath because I know it's true. I will not absolutize this conditioned state as having the authority to name who I am because only this infinite generosity has the authority to name who I am and is sustaining me and guiding through my sorrow 
to face it, to work through it, to understand it, to uh, whatever. And the same with joy. So there's the unwavering plenitude that utterly permeates our wavering ways. And we're trying to stay in touch with that. That's one way that helps me to see it. So the second one, Jim, you talked about something that might hinder us from experiencing this ground is uh, about the family of people. So this idea of making no distinction in the family of people. And this one was challenging for me uh, because partly because there's like a, um, a natural organic arising of, of a, a kind of love for family so I'm wondering that that I feel like I don't make happen, you know, that it that it it arises on its own, and uh, so I'm just wondering how we differentiate between that experience and and not experiencing that for someone else. Yes, it was coming to me right now. You know, if you think if you think of the Gospels and the crucifixion, and in the story of the Gospels. Uh, Mary's there at the foot of the cross. At the cross her station keeping stood the mournful mother weeping. And uh, his love for his mother. And hanging next to him was a thief who was crucified. He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom, the thief says. And so what you see in Jesus is his love for his mother completely enveloped as one was his what love for the thief. His love for his own executioners. See, his love for, so there's also this the human experience where we're moving toward that Christ-like, all-inclusive love. But it's always a human experience. It's all, and so the example I gave is if my, one of my two daughters would die, I'd be grief-stricken. But if on the news I see a young woman died and I see her father weeping, I'm sensitive to his pain, but, but I'm not grief-stricken over mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to let my, that deep, love for my daughter, because she's my daughter, see, extend out into kind of an, an, an empathy that spreads out through the suffering to the whole world like this. But at the psychological level, uh, there is the preferential love because she's my daughter. Yeah. So this is freedom from the tyranny of pre- preferential love and the midst of preferential love. Yeah, see, yeah. I don't, I'm not trying to get beyond preferential love because I've never asked to go beyond my humanity. I see. But I'm asked to have my uh, human experience become more and more inclusive. Yeah. More and more open. I think that's the subtle thing in all of Eckhart's things about all of this. It's really subtle. It's helpful to hear it that way. And so because the ground and Jesus was a reflection of someone who was recognizing his, his himself as the generosity of the ground, he loved in this equal way. And also, God created the powers. Mm-hmm. God created humanity. So, God, in a sense, we might say God created preferential love. That is, God created the emotional reality of the human experience. And so, we're trying to see to it that it's illumined by faith and that it's receptively open to the ground. And in a way, we'll see in the last talk to a circle's background and radicalizes ordinariness. Mm-hmm. The, 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 incarnate infinity intimately realized in the ordinariness of myself. Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment.
Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avett, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. Have you taken an online course with the Center for Action and Contemplation? Explore the intersection of ancient wisdom and Jesus' teachings in The Divine Exchange, an online course featuring Cynthia Bourgeau. Fully embrace divine interaction each day, starting June 16th. Register today at cac.org slash online dash ed. That's cac.org slash O-N-L-I-N-E dash E-D. Jim, would you also flip this one about the making no distinction in the family of people? Could you flip it the other way around that if you were from a family that, uh, you know, was caused you trauma or wasn't good to you or, or put you down, those sorts of things, that this would be an encouragement to detach from that having the say over who you are and how you see yourself? You know, this is a big issue in psychotherapy where there's a history of childhood trauma and um, the, a little girl cannot see her own preciousness. She has to see it mirrored in her parents' eyes. And if she looks into her parents' eyes and no one looks back, or the very person, adult she needs to love her are the people who are abusing her. They, she internalizes their blindness towards her and she becomes her own blind spot to herself like she loses the preciousness of herself. So in therapy, she lets the preciousness emerge, which allows the grieving to start, like to grieve and to reclaim yourself. And then you have to, to be true to your boundaries. It depends on who your parents are today and how they treat you and, and so on. And some people simply can't be in contact with their family of origin because they're still abusive. You know? and, but I mean, at the deep level, uh, you forgive them or you're open to them, but you will not, you have to honor the boundaries of not passively allowing anybody to treat you in ways that violate your deep essential worth and value in the eyes of God. Like that. So sometimes that's, you have to navigate your way through those things. So the next one has to do with time and a commitment to a project. And I'm just going to read the quote. Uh, it said, every such attachment, every premeditated work which deprives you of this ever new freedom. So I was wondering what this, this freedom is that Eckhart's talking about. Yes. Example that I use is that whenever we undertake a project or a worthwhile goal, say we're a teacher, we're going to teach the class, say the effort I put into wanting these sessions to go well on the mystics. Uh, I have to invest myself in an effort to uh, bring myself to the, I have to prepare for it. But if my inner peace is dependent on how it turns out, that's attachment. So I have to, I, I want it to turn out well. I have to do my homework, to do everything in my power to do the best to make it turn out well. But to be at peace if it doesn't turn out well, because it might not. It doesn't always turn out well. And if it doesn't, I process to see what I learned from that. Like, why didn't I learn? So the next time I'll be better prepared 
to do that. So that's what he's talking about, not having this, the, this foundational depth of myself dependent on how it turns out. I'm going to finish it on time if it's going to measure up to someone's expectation. I hope that it does, but I'm going to be detached from absolutizing those concerns because there's something within me, which is this love that utterly permeates me through and through, regardless of how it turns out. Mm-hmm. And that would be the freedom, like finding that place. It's a sense yes. of freedom to choose to choose that that over the the work or the goal, having the, the say. Yeah, that's why I say God's not wringing her hands, hoping we make it on time. Because, <laughs> because God, we're infinitely judged with mercy, and God's given us the ground. And God's given us the ground. So we're in the midst of an overwhelming... In God, we live and move and have our being. We're living in the vast interiority of the generosity of the ground. And yet the idolatry of the outcome of a conditioned state. So we... uh, Anyway, I think that's the insight. I feel like a lot of workplaces push people to be attached to their goals and outcomes. They really do. It can, can be a scary place, you know, to feel like... If you don't achieve the goal, you might lose your job or you won't be valued by the organization. Uh, there was a book that came out years ago, which I like when I was seeing people in therapy. It's called, I think, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And one of the habits is unaffected people are always behind. Mm. They're always like, he said, but he knows one habit of highly effective people, like say an administrator, is uh, when you come in to see the person, the administrator in effect says, I got eight minutes. Right now, if we need to reschedule later, we can sit down, and and during those eight minutes, you're the only person in the world. You're the only person in the world, and they're effective because they're present. Where other people, because they're behind, they're not present to you. They're always looking at their wristwatch because they're already late to the next meeting, and they get that's burnout. So, in a way, Eckhart is like the depth dimension of that habit. Just, and you also get the feeling when he gave his sermons, he was very present. He was very present. And uh, so I think it's, I think it's sensitivities like that. Yeah, yeah, that's really helpful. And I think the inner work too of like when you have a performance review or when you hand in something and you later get it back and you see there was mistakes, it's, it is watching that inner dialogue that we've been kind of programmed to have since our, going through school and our workplaces. To Yeah, and, and I also think this in spiritual direction too. You know, sometimes there's long-standing habits that compromise who we sense deep down we are and are called to be. And it's a learning curve. It goes on for years sometimes. And sometimes we get disheartened or impatient, but we're kind of to realize then our sincerity on the learning curve, along with 10,000 setbacks along the way. In AA, they talk about slow progress marked by heavy setbacks. We're we're to learn that there's deep lessons for us to learn. Mm-hmm. in our progress, because God's infinitely accepting of us in this, because we're, we're, otherwise we're tempted to be discouraged. And yeah, You talked about the generosity of God welling up in the situation in and as the outcome, regardless of the outcome. And so would you say that God, the generosity of God is in both the, what we might experience as the positive and the negative outcomes? I would. And, and to me, where I think the, the prime lesson there is death. Mm. You know, so Elizabeth Kubler-Ross on the stages of dying, you know, denial, anger, bargaining, then depression. Those stages are all the ego coming to the end of itself. And that's, that's that. But she says acceptance is beyond that. 
And she said, it's such a profound experience to be in the presence of a dying loved one who's come to acceptance because it's freedom from the tyranny of death in the midst of death. Mm. And something deathless shines out through their death. And so that's a nice metaphor for Eckhart. Why wait to the 11th hour to learn that? Yes. Why not learn it now? I was thinking about that too when I was listening to this episode because there's a way we are naturally being detached from things as we age and move towards death, like things that we might have enjoyed clinging to, the way we looked or our athletic ability or those sorts of things. We're being forced (laughs) to... (laughs) It's true. <laughs> to, to deal with letting them go. But, but the no. Buddhists talk about hungry ghosts clinging to the branches of trees. Mm. And so there was an ability that we used to have or a pleasure we used to have or an engagement we used to have is no longer there. But even though we pass it, we try to hold on to it. Yes. See? And we suffer. See? And an uh, example I use in my talk to is, uh, like, what if I died in my sleep tonight? And uh, there'd have to be this announcement you know, sad to say that Jim will not be able to finish the series. He died last night. And uh, and there you go. But it's true. See, Eckhart's trying to help us to see, well, if God's Lord of life, God is Lord of death, God's the infinity of life, God's the infinity of death. And we're trying to come to a place where we can't comprehend it, but we can live in fidelity to the sensitivity of our heart that that's true. Well, I do not enjoy thinking about that, Jim, but we'll... <laughs> <laughs> and what if you died in your sleep? And then we, we record this talk and we everyone could hear you say you didn't want to think about me dying. And I'd say, listen, isn't this strange? And here she's the one who died. Eckhart would say, right on, of course. <laughs> Corey's now hoping we don't mention him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Next, and, and then Corey died the next night. And I'm all alone. And I say, well, forge on without them somehow. Oh, no. (laughs) Just I I did have a curiosity about this one to do with time and commitment to a project because for Eckhart, he was committed to the project of travelling around and giving these sermons and as a result of doing that, he ended up being treated quite badly by the church and being put on trial. I'm curious, I wonder if you think about how he might have reacted to that or how that brought him to understand this experience more clearly. Yeah, you know, it's kind of complicated. You can read about it in the resources that we'll give the people. Um, but basically what it was, Reiner Sherman talks about, in theology, like his Latin works at the University of Paris, like the, or like the Creed, is indicative thought, like God is Trinity, God is eternal, God is love, God is... But as a preacher, it's imperative thought, it's not a set of beliefs. It's words directly to the midst of the heart in the midst of a transformation. Like the parables of Jesus. Jesus didn't give lectures. So his parables are callings to the heart. And his judges thought he was speaking indicatively, which would mean he'd be guilty of pantheism. Everything He never said that. He said just the opposite, actually. So he, he was just true to himself in a non-reactive way. Mm. He just, he just walked his walk and walked. And I think there's a, that's a deep mystery about this, is, is, is that the, this invincible light is kind of a fragile, shimmering light at the circumference 
of a confused world. Yeah. But it's the true center. And as soon as you try to institutionalize it like empire, let's institutionalize it, then you're falling into uh, you're falling into attachment. Yes. See, yeah. it's like it's like me being vehement about mystical union and how we need to understand it and get with it. And then I'm betraying what mystical union is, you know, which is always childlike and uh, unexplainably simple and upwelling of the immediacy that carries everything along to itself. And it's so that seduction of empire. So I think he was free from it. I, I, he felt it, yeah. but it was part of the mystery of the church is a, is a community of infinitely loved broken people. And he walked his walk. And, and complied with what uh, they were he, asking yeah, he, him he, to, to show up to the trials. Yeah, he wasn't bitter. He wasn't cynical. He didn't leave. He just didn't. But he didn't give in either. So he just held his own. And and I, I, I really think he was true to his. That would be my sense, I would assume. Yeah. That he saw through all of that. I like the way he spoke up for himself, that, that you're telling us the way he spoke up for himself because detachment is not becoming um, passive when there's when you need to be active. That's right. The next one was about prayer. Um, so one of the ways we can be hindered, this is an interesting one, because we could be hindered from God in our, from finding the ground in our prayer life. But you talked about when we show up for prayer and have no felt sense of God. It reminded me of when you talked about this kind of thing with John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila, how the prayer life changes. And I know they came after Eckhart, so Eckhart's not referring to them, but is this similar to their, to what they were describing in their path? Yes. He's saying that if we go to prayer, it's really like the dark night for John of the Cross. It's the loss of the felt sense of the presence of God. And again, we would feel that because we, we, we love that sense of consolation of God. It's a gift. But if we pray and we can't find it, see, it's attachment because it's circling back around. I'm praying for myself so I can have this experience. So if it's not there, I'm to be detached from it. And I, the way I put it poetically, that God's the infinity of my experience of the absence of God. And the experience of the absence of God is the poverty of God. And later in the last talk, we'll see the breakthrough into the Godhead. Is, is that. And likewise, if there's a lot of consolations, John of the Cross says somewhere, there's some people that think a great deal is going on in their spiritual life and not much is going on. Thomas Merton once said, he said, as if we're all walking around hoping someday we'll hit the jackpot and have to prop us up in the corner and fan us. Because we, <laughs> this is we got our fingers crossed. And uh, John of the Cross says, some people think nothing's going on and a great deal is going on because we're being weaned off our dependency on feedback loops to ourself. Cloud of it and all these mystics are saying that. And the feedback loops within the powers, I guess, is we're being weaned off. The... That's exactly right. They're in the powers. Where the more detached we are, high joy, the joy that we feel in prayer is impoverished compared to the high, high joy that death does not have the power to destroy. So the joy is there, but we remain empty-handed in the midst of joy. And the sorrow and the loss remain empty-handed in the loss. And then in that equal-mindedness and joy and loss, the light of the ground starts shining through the powers, I think, yeah, to be even-minded. Okay, the last one, uh, the last hindrance and the last way we can practice was uh, 
the way of having a virgin mind. And so this, the virgin uh, mind is designating being devoid of images, foreign images, he call, called it. What struck me about this section was that science confirms now the way the mind works, that we do create images in our mind of, of trees and things like that. It's, it's the way the mind functions. And do you think these mystics, they were just so aware of things like this that they could, this seems like well ahead of his time, what he's offering us here. Yes, there's more to it than we can go into in this series, but just right now in this context, is that um, the example that I use in the talk is when we see a tree. So Eckhart says, you know, if to be real in the fullest possible sense of the word is to be at the infinity of reality itself, and therefore only God is real. And therefore the tree unto itself is not real. And therefore, he says, we must be detached from the image of the tree because when we look at a tree, we, we take in the sensory information through our eyes or touch the tree with our hands. And then we form an interior image of a tree. And then that interior image of the tree is how the outside world comes into the senses. And then we have that set image and then we get attached to the image. And so we have internalized ideas of ourselves, about other people, about the world, about God. We have all these images in our mind. And he says we must be detached from all those images as if we were not yet. Because in and of themselves, they're, they're images of nothing in and of itself. When we buy into those images, that's ideology. It's our ideological living. So that's one thing he says about the nothingness of to be empty of all images, all set ideas about anything. No idea of God is God. Every idea of God's infinitely less than God. No idea of myself is, I'm not any idea of myself. And the mystery of myself is infinitely more than all my ideas of myself. So, so I'm to realize the limitations of ideas and set ideas and be detached from them, even though they're there, we're detached from them. And Eckhart's using ideas because he's talking. But he's detached, he's, he's detached from set images. Then the flip side, Eckhart says, but if we sit and contemplate a tree, as we contemplate a tree, we become aware of the presence of the tree. And we become aware then that the infinite generosity of God is that God is the reality of the tree and it's nothingness without God. Mm. So to be in the presence of the tree is to be in the presence of God. And so he says, to see a tree, to really, 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 really see a tree, you'd never have to listen to another sermon again. It doesn't mean you wouldn't listen to one, he's giving a sermon, but you wouldn't need to, because you would know in your heart, I saw a tree. I, I saw everything is God, and it's nothingness without God. I can't, I can't, not be in the presence of God, because I myself am the presence of God in my nothingness without God. And uh, that's a nice like subtlety of Eckhart. Yes, that's really beautiful. So I can bring to my mind right now images of people I love, images of a tree. I can, And we kind of move through the world that way, more, more invested in images than actually what's right in front of us. And so there's a practice, a way of opening ourselves to, to seeing the deeper truths of things. Yeah, but I'd put it this way. That's a good example. People we love, we have, and we do have images of them. 
And so the example I use, I think, in one of the previous sessions, too, is uh, let's say you've been fortunate to have found your way into a very deep, loving union with someone. And someone who hasn't seen you in years, say you went to high school with them, they're, they're in town and you're talking, you tell them about this relationship they're in. And you, you, you speak about this person and you show them a picture and what the person's like and so on. And the other person says, no, no, no. But who? I try to put words to who you know the person to be and your love for the person. See, then you're beyond images. And when you try, you're, you can't say it and your heart breaks when you try because we're carried in deep love, we're carried beyond images, you know, into the presence and, God, and God's the infinity of that. Yes, it really stops us from objectifying things. That's exactly right. And when you think about it, that's what prejudice is. Prejudice is we take a, a, an image of a, of a group of people and we think they are our perception of them and we don't see them at all because the only people we see are the people we love. If we don't love them, we don't see them. Same with ourselves, because God is love. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, these teachings just seem to be so relevant to today. It's amazing. He lived in the 13th and 14th century. Yeah, it's true. The last question I have for you today, Jim, is around application. Do you have any suggestions for those of us who are wanting to travel this path of detachment? How, how could we get started? Is there something we could do each day? Well, I would say, first of all, anyone who benefits from listening to the podcast is already on the path of detachment. Because if you weren't on the path of detachment, you wouldn't be moved by it. See, we're touched by it. And therefore, continue on. And basically, find your practice and practice it. So there's the daily rendezvous where there's no agenda but love. Like the, whether it be lexio, meditation, and prayer, or wordlessness, whatever your practice is. And every day when you end your practice, ask for the grace not to break the thread of that as you go through your day. And eventually all life becomes practice. Next, the teaching, which are these teachings. And the teachings is that which bears witness to the infinite generosity pouring itself out as every breath and heartbeat. And offering guidance on how to abide in it. And these mystics are doing that. And you take your teaching to heart. And then you learn that you're always being taught by life itself, if mm. you like all of this. And then community, your community is your oneness with God, God's oneness with you. And then also just one other person in whose presence you're not alone on this path. So even though all the people listening to this podcast, 99.9% .9 never met each other, mm -hmm. we're mysteriously one with each other. See, we, we form this community of seekers and uh, kinship, like the sense of kinship. And then that spreads out to the whole world and becomes your community. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. And the world lays claim on your heart, which is how Jesus walked this earth, really bringing them to this very message, really, about love. So I would put it that way. They're already on the path. Mm -hmm. And they they follow those foundations of this contemplative way and it just keeps deepening yeah yeah what do you think jim about me setting a goal for myself of becoming <laughs> detached <laughs> and measuring myself each evening about how well, well i've done yeah I, <laughs> uh, john of the cross i shared this image i was giving her flying on a plane somewhere giving a retreat on saint john of the cross mm -hmm. a detachment from sensory gratification on the night of the census. 
and uh, I was had my John of the Cross open, my fountain pen I was writing. And when the attendant brought my coffee, yeah, I said that it was cold. So I turned around and tried to get her attention, but she didn't hear me. So I kept writing on my detachment from sensory gratification. And I rang the little button, you know how you ding like this? And I kept writing, she didn't come back. So I, I, dang it, I dang it three times, ding, ding, ding. Like, can't you get some damn service on this plane? And I kept writing about sensory, and I caught myself. And I was so embarrassed. And then I saw I was attached to my image of myself as a detached person. Oh, yeah. Wouldn't get yeah. a retreat. <laughs> so <laughs> so it's, it, it's good to set a goal, but the goal is a goal and the trajectory toward that goal is where all the lessons are learned. Wow, yeah. Because it's like a goalless goal. Do I mean it never ends, really? But it's good to set goal in that relative sense. Yeah. It's good to set kind of a marker as a direction to head in, I think. Yeah, yeah that's really helpful, but not to be attached to the goal. Exactly. Yeah, beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Jim. This was a bit of a longer session, but there was so much to, to talk about and uh, really loved the conversation. Thank you. Thanks for the dialogue. It was very helpful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Centre for Action and Contemplation. We're planning to do episodes that answer your questions. So if you have a question, please email us at podcasts at cac.org or send us a voicemail. All of this information can be found in the show notes. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.